Welcome to Witch, the women in technology creative industries hub, elevating the voices of women in tech. My name is Bishi, the founder of Witch. In this podcast, I'll be talking to a woman in tech about her work, journey, life, and process. In this episode, I'll be talking to Anil Sebastian, a multifaceted artist, producer, and vocalist. They are the co-founder and director of the London Contemporary Voices. Please do like, review, and subscribe. We're a new podcast, and every bit of support helps. Welcome to Creative Women in Tech. And Neil Sebastian, how are you feeling now that lockdown three is lifting slowly? Oh, um, excited, anxious, confused. Um, don't want it to, kind of partly. Just want to stay in locked down, actually. Part of me does, if I'm honest. But also, yeah, excited and kind of ready to interact with people again and um, be a real human in the world of other humans. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. So you are someone that has worked across so many fascinating disciplines and... How would you define your practice? Um, um, ooh, uh, I would say it comes from emotion. Um, and for me, um, that's what leads everything. Um, feeling and, and, and connecting with that feeling. And, and that will come out mostly in singing, but in composition or sometimes in film. Um, or in writing, or in whatever form it will come out in, it will come out. Um, But that's what everything has in common. Um, I understand you have a degree in physics and philosophy. So where did your journey with music begin? (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, I don't really remember. Um, I was in a band with my older siblings um, called... Well, I think it was called Play School, and I think I might have been like two or three, and I was the singer, and they would um, play, and then they'd say, Anil, scream, and I'd go, ah! (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of like quite punk. Um, And yeah, apart from that, my dad played music in the house. He loved DJing and playing records, and um, but his relationship with music was really complicated, uh, you know, he was he was an amazing um, Murdogan player. Wow. Um, uh, really, yeah, and he was on the radio and everything in, in Malaysia where he grew up. But, but um, yeah, it was complicated. He was meant to be a doctor, you see. Um, I see. That, that's what he was sent <laughs> to become. And obviously he arrived here in this sort of strange uh, era of the UK um that didn't happen um he was very much more an artist really i think or or, well i mean why why is there this division between the arts and sciences anyway i've never really understood that but um they're one in the same really in in a lot of ways um but he his relationship with music was really complicated by that and i think he had this real kind of conflict within himself about about us and music so it was us kids and music. Um, so it was kind of like, on the one hand, encouraging it, facilitating it, really encouraging it in, in quite a punk sort of a way, like, you know, break boundaries, do one thing, usual things and do whatever you want, be free and, and you don't have to, you know, just kind of like a very, very open approach to it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that's, you know, uh, you know, not your main focus <laughs> you need to uh just study become a doctor so i think he was really divided about it and one minute he'd be saying that another minute this um but the whole narrative was go be a doctor really um and my rebellion against that was <laughs> doing physics and philosophy <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> so amazing. I, god i was so badass uh, but but I, but that's what, but genuinely, that's what I wanted to do. I loved physics. I absolutely loved physics and maths. I loved everything actually. 
at school. I loved all the subjects apart from PE. <laughs> right. <laughs> Genuinely, I could have done anything and I would have been happy as Larry. Um, I, I loved physics. I loved philosophy. It really changed my life. Um, but music just carried on the whole time. And so it was in the first year of uni, that's when I first met Imogen Heap. Um, not the first met her, but that's when I first worked with her. So I I met her when I yeah started working with her then um, and went on tour with her that summer. <laughs> so the, all of these things happened in in between, um, and I started making my own first album, which I never released around the same time. So yeah, that's, that's the, the yeah. If, if I don't know, that's an answer. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's really, God, that's really fascinating. And there are bits of that that I completely relate to. My mum was a very, is a very respected singer and it was a big part of our lives, but it was also that I just had to be academic, you know, and I just had to, they wanted me to get an English degree. And I think she wanted me to be some kind of a she she wanted me to be on the bbc you know she she wanted me to be a newsreader on the bbc or something around going to oxbridge and being on the bbc you know that's that's yeah. what i wanted and yeah my rebellion was to go absolutely mental when I was about 14 and just run off with the queer circus. Hey, and here I am. Hi. You know? <laughs> oh, I, love it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I, I think, I think, um, yeah, I, I, um, I mean, my dad got very sick around then, around that age. And I think that changed things and, and put, made me feel much more drawn to try and somehow give him that as his parting thing, you know, because he, he died when I was 17. So it was all quite difficult, but in a weird way, it was the Oxbridge thing that I managed to sway him with because I said, um, well, you know, actually, I'd quite like to go to Oxford. And if I go there, I'd do physics and philosophy. And, he'd say, and he kind of just went, deal, all right. You can either do medicine or you can go to Oxford. And then I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to go to Bristol. Um, I didn't even apply to Oxbridge because I thought it was stuffy and, and the music scene was pants. And I wanted to go to Bristol because I like Portishead and Massive Attack. And I somehow thought I'd go there and then everything would be great. And I'd... Uh, meet those musicians and uh, make music with them or something i don't know what i thought amazing and yeah. so what were the first pieces of music to make a really big impact on you oh oh god um oh it's really that's hard to answer I, I think everything did like is the answer i was like this little sponge and i kind of just was completely obsessed and overwhelmed by music and I had this old radio with a spinny um, dial on it where you tuned into the um, stations and I just used to spin it and see what where it landed and, and then I would get another one <laughs> and do the same thing so there'd be two on at once and I'd get my dad's old tapes and chop them up into little tape loops and I was just obsessed with kind of shoving things together and seeing what happened and um, yeah, I mean anything really from from flipping Metallica Black Album to Portishead to, I remember hearing that in primary school um, and just singing it. And maybe that was like my my kind of transness coming through, you know, I just want to be a woman, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, um, yeah, uh, Bjork, I was obsessed with Bjork, even in primary school. Mm. And that just continued and she continues to be a real hero of mine in music right the way through and everyone that works with her as well and that whole team and generation of uh, incredible innovators um but then classical music wise um arvo pert uh, stockhausen i liked all the weird composers i think you know typically um <laughs> and, yes uh, yes queen i hear you <laughs> Anything, anything with voices, I was just obsessed with singing. So I'd like, I liked, I liked unusual voices um, because I liked singing along with them and seeing if I could do it. Um, 
So I would just enjoy doing that no matter who it was and just enjoy copying their phrasing and tone. Mm. Yeah. And my next question was going to be about, can you remember what the first piece of technology to really impact your childhood? But it, it sounds like this spinny radio and cutting up. The spinning radio. Text. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that was really radical to go, oh, I know, I'm going to cut up some tape. Like... Oh, I was awful. I used to, I like, I, I, I butchered um, several guitars that I got, you know, I, I'd save up and buy a guitar or something and save up my paper round money and then butcher it and take it apart, put it back together. Oh, what does it sound like if I take out all the frets? <laughs> and, you know, or like tune it differently. With, uh, you just wanted to make everything sound different. And I was just curious. It was just curious, curiosity, dismantling things and reassembling them, um, really. Um, but in terms of technology, we had a copy of a, a piece of software called Voyetra on a PC. And, and my dad was, he, he, we weren't allowed to have games consoles or anything like that, but we did have like a BBC microcomputer, shows my age, and um, like later Ataris that we used at school. Um, but like it was, it was programming actually, MIDI, and Voyetra was a MIDI sequencer. So I just started doing that and making these really funny little, <laughs> funny little tunes on MIDI. That's amazing, yeah. yeah. Oh no, I think it's fine to show your age. I really don't <laughs> care. Yeah, I mean, come on. What's the point in? <laughs> also- I can't, can't be bothered with that, I mean. Yeah, also just like, we're just Huns for life. I mean, let's yeah. face it, it's just, 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 just a Hun for life. Um, yeah. So, how did you come to co-found the London Contemporary Voices? Oh, well, so um, that was uh, basically Imogen Heap um, is the answer to that. We were, she was doing a show at the Royal Albert Hall and I um, got in touch saying, um, I really want to come, can I come along? Um, <laughs> My brother was working yeah. working with her at the time as her um, tour manager as well, uh, production kind of manager for the show. And so I was like, can I come? And she was like, yeah, sure. But the only thing is, guest list is really tight at Royal Albert Hall. But, but I want everyone I've ever worked with on stage in some way. And I, I want this choir. And I thought maybe um, you could sing in the choir. And I thought, great. Sounds good. I like singing. Um, but it turned out that there wasn't really a choir yet and uh, partly because lots of people who were going to be in the choir ended up on stage doing other things yeah. um, and so uh, I was tasked with uh, creating one so uh, between myself and my then partner who was the co-founder um, and we're still very good friends and um, his sister and a few other people we kind of rounded up everybody we knew who sang and put together this group of people uh and that's how it started and then we did it i thought oh i like this um should we carry it on and then we did and i didn't really know i mean i knew about choirs from church because <laughs> uh, my mum was uh it still is very catholic and we grew up singing in church um and i knew about that kind of choir singing and a very good friend of mine and my counselor at the time encouraged me to sing in the uni choir I was terrified of that. I really just felt out of place and like I was um, not good enough and all of those sorts of things. Um, but that kind of was the first time I sang in a classical choir, as it were. Um, and so, yeah, it's a strange route in, but it kind of, it's not like I, I went and studied choral music and, you know, <laughs> so I think, I think quite a lot of people find me very annoying because I sort of uh, didn't do that. Um, but in in that, I think it creates a unique perspective. And in a way, um, when you bring someone in who is creative in some other way, I, I think it's almost like every orchestra should have a guest creative director for a residency to see what happens. <laughs> because I think, I think you'd get really interesting results. And I think it might challenge challenge some some kind of very um sort of norms that are in these yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I I can I completely agree with you. Um, and the London Contemporary Voices have worked with so many incredible people. What's the first mm. evocative, you know, like there's so many great collaborations. It's really tried to be like, what was your favorite collaboration? What's a particularly oh. evocative collaboration that's kind of coming up in this moment? Yeah. Um, it's it for me. Uh, this sounds really cheesy and it sounds really contrived, but for me, there there was someone in the choir. Um, she doesn't sing with us anymore. Um, and, and her mum, when people watched fireworks, her mum would turn around and face the wrong way because she liked watching the people watching the fireworks. And um, I know this is a very cheesy story, but it's just true for me. I really enjoy the experience of being with the family, with with this whole set of people with voices and stories. And for me, it's it's not the working with the artists, it's it's seeing them and seeing that kind of magic happen. Um, so sometimes the biggest shows that you do, you know, if you're at iTunes Festival or um, on the stage at Glastonbury or wherever it is or at the proms, sometimes those moments aren't ones that you you sort of take in because you're so like, you know, I've got to get it right. Um, and sometimes it's the moments before and afterwards and in rehearsal or, um, you know, the moments where you're singing on the bus all together on the way home or it's it's that that, that I remember the most and I love the most. Um, but the one thing that really stands out for me, there was a show did which had Imogen Heap in it and Guy Sigsworth, who's uh, a very good friend of mine and uh, mentor and musical hero long before I realised it was him behind all my favourite music. Um, and Manny DeLargo um, and Shlomo, the beatboxer and uh, lots of other people. But but having all of those people on stage at once with the choir, it was the coming together of so many things that meant so much to me and the feeling of family and the feeling of like um, connection and being in the moment. I, I just felt so alive at that show. That was just wonderful for me. Um, and coming up, um, one thing that's been really difficult for me is um, the, the very binary nature of orchestras and choirs, particularly choirs, because uh, we we um, associate uh, gender with uh, voice parts. Um, and so there is this very like, women stand this side, men stand this side. What do you do if you're neither of those things? <laughs> um, what do you do when you're trans? What do you do when you're transitioning? Um, and so it increasingly, as I started to go through that journey and a couple of other people in, in the group that I knew were, that was really painful. And there were some gigs and some bookings that we did for clients of ours. I just felt the most phenomenal dysphoria and felt really like uncomfortable and, and suddenly really um, dissociated from what I was doing in the space that I had actually been such a part of founding and creating i'd suddenly like found myself alienated by it and so um we're setting up the first ever transgender non-conforming professional choir so there are other ones that exist that are brilliant um communities and this is our first professional one as far as i know and um the purpose of that is to show what we can do and to break some of the myths that, you know, oh, you know, people who are transitioning suddenly can't sing anymore or all the horror stories that, that are around about transition and that you should, or even the idea that you should just go away and, uh, you know, come back when you're, you look like a woman or you look like a man and you must go one way or the other. Um, and I just think the people that I've met through that so far, we haven't even started, even just in this early bit, have blown my mind in terms of what they can do vocally. The, 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 the unique emotional landscape and um, that well of emotion to draw from and the incredible kind of presence that it gives you to go through something like this. Um, 
And I'm just really curious as to how, how our voices will blend and what we can bring back to not just LCV, but other communities and other vocal traditions, which to, to challenge that a little bit. <coughs> to challenge the idea, we you know, of course, uh, a bass can be a, a woman uh, or a, a man or, or anything else, you know, any other gender that exists. Absolutely. And I mean, before we move into some <coughs> of the more technology-based work that you've been mm. doing, in terms of how gendered things are in classical music or in, in sort of choral music, mm. do you feel that in the tech space as well? And, and sort of, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I, I know, I mean, I've been looking at this today, actually, so I don't have good uh, up-to-date knowledge. But I, I was in, I, I was kind of researching some really key figures in electronic music, uh, pioneers like Daphne Oram, and um, others in that vein. <laughs> I just suddenly, hang on, Susanna Ciani and people like that. Yeah. Um, and I was really struck by um, that there was a bit of kind of like a movement of pioneering women in electronic music. Um, and also trans women and uh, non-conforming uh, people uh, in electronic music. And I think that's probably because no one thought, I think it's because it was kind of a, oh, that's just weird stuff, let them get on with it. And as soon as it became something that was, um, it got appropriated, I suppose. As soon as it became something that, that, that looked interesting and had commercial potential, it got appropriated. And they were sort of, to a very large extent, just erased and not talked about again despite the fact that they were pioneers um so yes it's very gendered and i think there's an awful lot of um warping of history and and this notion that men are technical and women are emotional and over emotional and um trans people are just um i don't no one knows what they're like they're just weird you know but these ideas that get carried through um, just perpetuate this idea that that techno technological things are not for women or trans or non-conforming people. They are for men. Um, they are the people that can code and understand and, and create using technology. It's just complete myth. There's no reason at all for thinking that. And actually, even if it were true, um, it, it wouldn't be true if that makes sense because even if this notion that 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 um women are more attuned to emotions or something rubbish like that even if that were true um that still wouldn't mean that you don't need emotion and connection in order to be a technologist because that's actually really quite essential especially when you're talking about something like ai <laughs> without that you're talking about something that's pretty lethal really um so yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I mean I just you know it's it's so wonderful to take in and it's so wonderful to hear you articulate all of this stuff because I feel all of this so much but this coming from someone who's like non-conforming and, and trans you know it, hearing that perspective is so important because obviously I'm I'm a cis woman or you know mm. and so I feel it on lots of levels you know like in our pre-podcast chat we were talking about people sitting at different intersections I sit at so many uh intersections that Absolutely. I I obviously I empathize with the trans experience I've worked with trans people like even before my career became official and my realization as a woman really came through my relationship with trans women. Um, mm. And I've like, I, I've never really articulated that because I never really felt the need to articulate that. But I think now, because we live in such a polarized world, you have to articulate these things, you know? Um, so now it's out on my podcast anyway. <laughs> but to hear those views come from someone who's trans, that yeah. gives it, a different like 
you know, like a different like magnetic field around all of those feelings. You know, you know, I'm 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 trying to say this in the most succinct and sort of sensitive way, you know. Yeah, no, um, I mean, that's incredible. And I think what a beautiful thing to to for, for your experience and understanding of your own um I don't know how you described it, femininity or womanhood. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, being, yeah. As being realized through that experience and that connection yeah. with the trans community. I think that's really powerful. And actually, I, I don't I think if people are honest, there's a there's there's this sort of silent shaping of culture. Um, you know, you look at ballroom and how much that has shaped everything about music and fashion and just everything. <laughs> really. Uh film, everything. Uh and how once that's happened, it kind of gets sort of appropriated and taken forward and, and yanked away. Um, and how much we learn about our own identities through that, you know, what it is to be a woman now versus pre that era is a different thing. Um, and, you know, I think that's something that people struggle with somehow for some reason, but also I think if you look at the LGBT community as a whole and how there's this movement to take the T out of the, you know, you just think, why? I mean, the, these are the people that actually fought for the liberation of this entire community. These were people at the front because by the, in, the, in their own words, they had they had less to lose. They were at the bottom. So it was death or fight and they fought and we all benefited mm. from their fight. So it's just insane to me that later on once you've got that you just push down again yeah. um, and that's just a sad reality i think of how um it all works it's kind of a very clever intricate system that that encourages everyone to push downwards on anybody who is lower or lesser in this in in this sort of you know construct um it's just a funny game isn't it really um, yeah and um, in many ways sadly i see that trend becoming more normalized of this of this punching down and and sort of reminding people that you know our media is the the algorithms that determine how we interact online on social media platforms are designed so we keep arguing with each other so next time you feel compelled to just take a swipe try and pull focus and think about what's making you do that and would you actually say that to someone mm. in person i think so many of these arguments that get played out online and people lose jobs and they get cancelled you just want to say if you were actually in a room with these people you would never talk to that person like that you would never even think these things you wouldn't think that you know, it. You know, it. Like, it, if you're friends with any trans people or any gender non-conforming or any gender minorities, you wouldn't even think that they were that. You know, you. you, you yeah. Th these I mean, awful thoughts that you're having, that you're tweeting, that you're saying out there, you just wouldn't even think them. You know. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I, I, I also think you touched on something really interesting there. Um, the word algorithm. Um, I was speaking to. Um, an artist called Aegon Branza, um, who uh, I am hopefully going to be working with. Um, yeah. He is an incredible um, artist that's actually from the, the choir community that I'm from. But he he was talking about the prejudice within algorithms. So obviously, if you if you um, if you're if you're coding something, your own prejudices will filter into that system and and that system will then become um we'll, we'll take that forward so so that kind of discriminatory uh element in 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 ai is something that it's at that turning point right now where once that data the deeper that kind of um coding gets pushed in the the, the more core it becomes in the the dna of ai uh the harder that is to unpick and even notice um that it's there so that i find really fascinating so i mean even if you look at kind of a lot there's been a lot of talk recently about kind of um 
um, a bias within medicine, uh, uh, discrimination within medicine against people of colour, for example, or trans people, or women, actually, in general as well. Um, if you look at that and imagine that if you're training an AI um, using existing medical staff, so they're learning the decisions that uh, humans make, and that's their core learning, and then that gets embedded, and that's what how they make all their decisions. Then that exact system, systemic racism or prejudice or sexism uh, gets embedded, and it's a whole other discussion to try and undo that, because um, you've kind of got it in every single piece of equipment and gear that's out there doing that role. Then yeah. it's a really frightening thought to me. Um, and not one that I think is really understood. And it's not necessarily that that would even be intentional. It would be, uh, it, it, it's learning from us. So it's going to learn our patterns of behavior and <laughs> our implicit biases as well. So that was something that we talked about a lot and wanted to make a piece of work around. Um, still working out what that piece of work will be, but um, it will be something. Um. <laughs> did you watch coded bias on netflix i haven't it's actually. really great it's it's fantastic yeah it's joy buell and winnie i really hope i got her surname right but i saw her work all about how there is racial bias within ai yes i saw it, I saw it at the barbican a couple of summers ago and yeah. then and i was always obsessed with it it made a really huge oh. um, Yes, I, 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 I'm aware of it, but I haven't yeah. actually seen it. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, a big part of the plot line is about Joy's work and about her setting up the, algori the Algorithmic Justice League, which is, you know, superhero, you know, Joy's just a superhero in my... But you see her in her red suit talk, speak in the Supreme Court um, and gets facial recognition software banned in some of the projects in Brooklyn. And, and just, it's just so, it's terrifying and fierce. And this woman is so brave and I would love to. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. So, oh, so I pretty. That. How yeah. is that? Thank you so much for telling me yeah. about that. Really well, cool. I'm, I'm surprised that not everybody on my fucking Facebook timeline and on Instagram mm. and Twitter is not, tweeting about this stuff it's like guys yeah. there's there's oh well i mean doesn't that say something in itself yeah yeah <laughs> doesn't that say something in itself how interesting it is that certain things just seem to kind of disappear yeah <laughs> much, more easily, much more easily than other things so it's yeah it's, it's interesting. yeah um, that makes me sound like i'm a, a, a real big conspiracy theorist i'm, I'm not no um, i just genuinely think that that's part of the that's yeah. evidence of it you know in some form yeah so. well the, because all of the people in that film are really hardcore scientists technologists yeah. all with like major academic backgrounds some of them are writers and they're all yeah. clubbing together to be yeah. like hang on a minute no, the, the, you know it, it's it's simple and it's it's obvious that that's something that would happen it's just I guess it comes down to whether people believe that those initial biases are there or not, because yeah. you still get lots of people who are like, oh, that's just not a thing, you know. Yeah. Medicine isn't biased uh, against people of colour and women and trans people. It's just not a thing in some people's eyes. So, of course, if you deny that, then you've, you've knocked out one premise and the whole argument falls apart. But... You know, <laughs> the rest, of it, it's 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 not a complicated thing. It's just obvious that that's, that's what would happen. It, it's learning from us. Yeah, yeah. Or just even like what we were saying earlier in our pre-podcast chat about being a brown weirdo in the UK yeah. music industry. Yeah. It's like it doesn't have a great history of supporting us or doing anything no. with us. Um, bar from sort of this, you know, and, and amazing musicians, but a, a particular four, four or five artists who are brilliant, but have been there for a while. The other brown weirdos, we just, we have to create our own reality, really, don't we? Yeah, yeah, quite, exactly. And I think, you know, I, I, I think it's that thing about visibility. So where are the people of our generation who are 
visible um, for younger people coming up to see that, to see to see the, the, the British Asian representation. Oh, British. Why am I going all British? British Asian. <laughs> British Asian representation. <laughs> You know what no, I mean. They need, yeah, they need, they need <laughs> us. I don't even mean that. I just mean, you know, brown faces on on things that make music that doesn't necessarily um, sound any... I don't know. It, it can sound however it sounds, <laughs> you know. I've, I've had that yeah. so many times, just, you know, oh, um, there's not enough of an Asian component for it to be on this station. Or then it's not... But then it's um, oh you should approach um, BBC Asian Network really because that that's where we put put all the that kind of music. And I was like, well, if you actually listen to it, because there's very little that's obviously like, you know what I mean. And it's like, what are you talking about? If you if you listen to it, you know, Girl, down, you wouldn't think anything of it. It would you wouldn't think that 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 that. So that doesn't make any sense. So yeah, just the way that we get kind of pigeonholed. Um, Girl, this is a story of my life. Even though the BBC yeah. Asian Network are brilliant, and oh, I know, you know, the the, yeah. the, the DJs um, on there are great. They're as weird as we are. It's yes, just... exactly, and they're they're wonderful. They're fighting the good fight. Yeah, um, and they're you know they're incredibly smart and mm. talented and beautiful, actually, and very open minded. Yeah. Um, but you know. The ultimate thing is the the actual structure underlying it all is not of their making. You know, it's a, it's a whole systemic thing. Um, and I often find that what happens is, um, and then this is no criticism criticism of 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 any of these artists because we all do what we have to do to survive. Actually, and and some people would say it of me. But there's the name change thing. Um, you know, I'm Anil Sebastian. My my actual surname is Kamala Garan. I chose that because I'm mixed race. Um, my mum is German, so the Sebastian is my middle name. So really I'm going by my first name and my middle name. Um, but I know lots of artists who change their name or have an acronym or something else so that they don't ha have these connotations of being, you know, uh, a, a South Asian or an Asian artist. So they're just sort of like... Um, are encouraged that way to sort of uh, either go with appearing or sounding or naming themselves that makes them seem whiter or, or blacker. And um, the brown bit is just the bit that people just don't want anyone to be that. Um, and that's just so wrong. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I absolutely hear you i mean it's been it's been it's been the story of my life but what i would say is that it's taught me to fight for my self-esteem and yeah. so i don't really get um like what's that syndrome where you're like oh i don't deserve it <laughs> what's imposter that called? Syndrome. Yeah, yeah i don't yeah. i don't get imposter syndrome because i'm like no bitch i worked that every yeah. tiny little thing that you see that went right know yeah. that about 20 things didn't happen or know yeah. they're like you know the like 10 projects didn't happen i got about 20 people being shady to me i've had like people stop me in clubs just say the most like vile things just, just vile things that are almost worthy of their own comedy series because of how vile people have been to me like you know so therefore i don't get imposter syndrome because every little thing i've i've work so hard for and it's actually that's made me a lot much happier person yeah yeah i mean i i think that's something that is so important to hear um because the narrative is so kind of dominated in when you're talking about women in tech women in music when you're talking about race issues when you're talking about transness it's dominated by tragedy being pushed down um uh imposter syndrome not feeling good enough and these are all things that that probably happen to most of us on the way in some way or another yeah um but i just feel so compelled at the moment to just show like joy is an act of rebellion and 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 kind of confidence is an act of rebellion you know uh kind of uh, 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 showing a different story um and being being actually 
we tell our own narrative rather than you know play along with this kind of like uh sob story um in, in a way oh, that sounds awful but you know what i mean it's like um yeah. i just feel particularly with the trans community at the moment i think we're all really pissed off i mean like i'm speaking for everybody but within the group that i'm setting up one of the common things that people were sharing was that we're pissed off we're pissed off at kind of not being able to claim some some fucking joy for ourselves and, and every story being about being murdered or being um oppressed and you think well actually like you know we have joy as well you know and uh we're good at stuff too excellent at stuff yeah yes exactly but you know that thing where sometimes you feel like um you're you feel like the conversations with people in the industry or people that you meet or you know it's it's never about the actual fucking work you know it's about the kind of like and what's it like being um a brown musician yeah what's that like you kind of like i can talk about that but uh, you know <laughs> i do lots of interesting lots things, of things. <laughs> yeah. my work, most of my work's not about being brown funnily enough i'm really quite used to being brown i don't really feel the need to make all my work about it yeah um, <laughs> yeah. no i absolutely hear you which brings me on to the epicness which is daffodil your piece daffodil which is an audio visual work it's as much a musical work as it is a film work could you talk us through a little bit what daffodil is and the themes you are exploring yeah um it was uh, it is a film a music film i guess and I, the starting point was music the starting point was um really creating it started with lyrics and music that were exploring consciousness um initially i was exploring consciousness from the perspective there's so much interesting research happening at the moment and from the perspective of um kind of artistically but also from the perspective of physics and the potential um philosophical consequences of different ideas and conceptions of consciousness um and their, impl their implications for technology and vice versa. So that really interested me. Um, it interested me from the point of view of um, is consciousness unique to humans? You know, is it, does it even exist or is it an illusion? Um, uh, is it a user illusion? There's all sorts of things. And, and, and kind of like what's the connection between consciousness and uh the physical the physical world is there such a thing a difference you know increasingly people don't think so um and also um is it algorithmic so uh can it be um you know can we can we write it down can we can we um, make something else conscious uh, and it, it, why would we want to do that and if we did what would happen all of those sorts of things um very sci-fi really um but i wanted to not be too sci-fi i wanted to i wanted to have wanted it to have emotional resonance and that's why i held off doing it for so long because i thought you know i've, I've never brought the two worlds of what i'm interested in you know the physics and the philosophy and the music together um and i've always wanted to but i was scared of like you know uh <laughs> just sounding like i'm reading out from a a kind of encyclopedia of facts or I don't know. I didn't want it to be sort of um, crass or contrived. So, but then something happened, which was, I was here in Folkestone where I live and I went to this thing called Connecting Creatives, you know, and I met this incredible woman called Susanna Howard, um, who's the director of a charity who I do a lot with called Living Words. And I, something really surprising happened, which was she gave me a copy of The Things Between Us, which is the first anthology of a book of pieces written well created by people with advanced dementias um and it really surprised me because a i obviously didn't know very much about dementia um as it turned out 
but B, also the level of absolute incredible clarity and philosophical insight from some of these words. So one of the lines that really stood out to me was, I can't think, but I am. And another one was, I don't know that I think. Something that if you know of someone who's had a brain injury or has a dementia or you've experienced, uh, you know, uh, um, a, a neurological kind of variation or, you know, you're, you're neurologically diverse in some way or you have mental health things or you just, you know, there's so many points in life where we can relate to that. Anybody can relate to that idea that, like, I don't even know if I... You know, that, that kind of dissociation with yourself or your own thoughts. Um, and I love the way that that kind of turned Rene Descartes' cogito on its head, which is, you know, I think, therefore I am. The act of thinking proves my existence in itself. Um, and uh, this was meant to be, you know, this sort of, like, solid bedrock like oh you know we're okay because we've got this um and actually realizing that that oh okay and then i started to think about the work of um derek parfit the philosopher and started to think about um his conception of personal identity um something that i really related to uh mainly because of my own experience with my own identity and the changes within it that there is no single truth to our identity and it's changing over time um there, there, I mean, there's lots of things that, that he says about identity, which I can't easily sort of um, uh, summarise, but it, it, it's essentially that there's no single truth about our personal identity and that to some extent we have this idea in our minds that who I was as a child, I'm the same person. Um, what, you know, what does that mean? Um, a, we're always changing, but but what is it? What is it? What is that thing that continues? What does that mean? Where does it come from? What's it? What's the essence of it? Um, I guess. Um, but I, I loved Derek Parfit's writing about personal identity. And, and so somehow uh, the emotional resonance that that made, the kind of sadness, the, the, the joy, the detachment, everything that comes with some of those words started me off on lyrics and it started me off with this idea of a character and the idea of loss and exploring it through death exploring it through if somebody died would you bring them back how would you do that if you did what would they be who would they be um and all the ethics around that and the journey of it and that kind of led me to think about myself as a child and I found all that archive footage and I thought, well, what, what would an AI make if it was making a conscious being just out of this old archive footage? It didn't have much else, maybe a bit of DNA and a bit of archive footage. And I imagine that it would be this kind of sort of uh, strange sort of creature <laughs> uh, in, in this sort of underwater world. Um, and you know what would our connection to that be what would it how would it think and feel and you know all of these things that we wouldn't have access to so that that's kind of like a really long-winded way of um explaining trying to explain this uh, film but on a surface level it has a simple narrative that's you know much easier to grasp than a lot of that stuff is <laughs> All that, stuff, all that stuff is fascinating, by the way. And because I've sat and watched it, like really studied it a couple of times over this afternoon, it's bringing everything back and making me want to go back and just sort of rewatch everything. But in the yeah. most simple form, it's about an AI. You tell me. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. I guess it's about, it's, okay, here we go. It's about a scientist who goes rogue and tries to recreate a dead child in the form of an AI. Beautiful, beautiful. And that, yeah, and, and, and that's explored through this underworld kind of uh, universe that this creature creates.
absolutely beautiful. And there were several different locations. Like there Mm. seemed to be that beautiful building in Folkestone that I think you were in, but then there was a whole lab scenario. Where was this lab? I was fascinated. (laughs) Well, um, I I can't, I can't actually tell you. Uh, Oh, uh, that's uh, fine. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, it it was on those shoots, Neil. (laughs) It was, it was, no, (laughs) it was a, it was a data center. Right. um, Which has been heavily, um, processed and it's completely unrecognizable now with all the um the the kind of um overlaying and cgi and everything else that's gone into it um and the lab is completely created by tom so tom thomas rule is the person who did all the animation i didn't do the animation i just need to say that uh, but i did write the story <laughs> uh, but tom is a genius and uh, he made that it's really hard to tell actually which bits are just what was there and what which bits he kind of made when you watch it i think so he did a good yeah. job yeah well now you're now you're bringing that up it's it's what i like about it is that there's definitely the stuff which looks very animated sci-fi kind of ridley scott and then there's yeah. the pastoralism of the whole Folkestone setup and then yeah. there's the vintage kind of what looks like 90s VHS tape and it all works together and that's kind of a thing to get to, to get those three visual languages sitting together yeah. as a part of a seamless story I mean now now you know I mean like like hats off to you babe that's fierce <laughs> that's really really fierce thank you, thank you. that's all Woo. Woo. I know I know thank you, thank you. I, I mean I'm really proud of it and I'm I, I mean Tom is incredible as an artist and so so this was a collaboration really and you know um it was wonderful to have him work on this because it's so precious to me and it's it's really like a a baby to me and and I worked with him I worked with my brother Ingmar Kamalagaru (laughs) um who's also in the film in in a way which you might spot and uh you know the work that he did and, and also Sharif Hashizume um, as well. So between, it was really a core team of four of us and then there were lots of other people who also made it all happen. Um, so yeah. Fantastic. To do that. And Fantastic. I nearly died, I think, of, of like my brain nearly actually exploded and <laughs> I'm not sure, I'm not sure if I could go through it again, but um, I loved it. Yeah, well, I can definitely understand that with every kind of major AV project, you do just feel like, you know, you come home and then you just order Deliveroo and it's just all day and you're just exhausted, just eating shite in your pajamas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but and I don't know about you, but I'm quite, um, I can't suppose it makes me sound very fragile, but I'm not. I'm, I'm quite sensitive in the sense that like, I get a bit absorbed into the world, you know, of it. So I'm I'm sort of there and I'm a bit kind of like not present in anything else I'm doing. And like for, for like six months, I was kind of like people would be talking to me. I'd just be I'm just not there. Yeah. Completely emotionally unavailable to people I love. I, you know, it's it, <laughs> I want to be less like that when I'm making work. I think that's one resolution (laughs) yeah well when you make work it is like an exorcism you know a lot of stuff comes up and so it's normal to be feeling pretty mental I mean you know like making things uh, like as much of a joy it is to realize your vision as, as much as it like like is it like, like is it the vagal nerve that it wakes up and sort of makes you yeah. feel amazing so it, it it does all of these things but you know it's you know you're working against timelines and budgets and all the other hiccups that come with a production and you know it sounds like everybody was lovely on this production and I'm also oh. been really fortunate to work on many projects full of incredible people but you know there sometimes are some little tricky people you know here and there always and always. you know and and things playing up and things out of your control and you're dealing with these really big themes of identity and your childhood and kind of like technology and blah and so you know having a mad exorcism as you're making things 
It is yeah. nuts. It's all, it's just, it's yeah. just and of course, all the self-doubt, the unknowns, and, and also once you get so close to it, you lose perspective altogether. And to you, it all makes perfect sense. But you, you're sort of still trying to connect with the part of yourself that's like, what's this like for someone who's never seen it? You know, yeah. never heard it. And, and that, I find I can do that with music on its own because I've done it longer. Um, but, but getting so immersed in this was like, I just, just lost all perspective completely. I was awful. But um, I'm so glad I did it. And I feel like that kind of, it was one of those things where you feel like something breaks through in you. And you know, and it, weirdly that preceded a personal breakdown as well. So it was kind of like, oh, not, yeah. it didn't trigger it off or anything like that. But it's that thing of like, oh gosh, yeah. Like I really thought I had myself worked out, but sometimes you do a project like that or you have some experiences like the ones that followed it that really humble you and ground you and make you realize you don't know shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, yeah, I hear you. I'm like completely, completely a like amen to that. So I'm going to wind down the interview now. So, so have you named this uh, trans and non-binary choir yet? Do they like? Do they have a name or? or... No. Okay. I, so it... I, un, unnamed as of yet. I'm, at the moment, it's called TGNC, uh, Transgender Nonconforming Choir. Um, don't know if it will stay that. I mean, it feels a, a little bit like maybe we should be a bit more. I don't know. I, I don't know. We're thinking about it still, and I want it to kind of come from the collective group as well, to, in some way. So, yeah. And so, so, if people do want to get involved and they just want to shoot you an email, what's the best oh. way of, of getting in touch with you? Yeah, um, Anil at lcvchoir.co.uk, or just DM me on Instagram. I'm, I'm very approachable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, you're not. You're you're not. You're not. You're an absolute sweetie. But I, I, I am. I do want it to be like that. I want it to be very like, you know, not hierarchical and all that shit. Just if you're interested, just have a chat with me and yeah. talk about it. So, um, yeah. And the final question is, who is your favourite woman in tech? Oh, God. Um, oh, there's so many to choose from. Um, Who's popping? I mean, okay, like right straight away. I mean, it's it's like because she's kind of like set me on a, a music path. Imogen Heap, I think, is a phenomenal technologist, um, just complete pioneer and uh, genius, and has like is pretty boundless in 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 her ambition, and has just pulled off some phenomenal technological feats. Um, which has been just in, so inspiring to be near and be around and see. So I think it would have to be her for me, I reckon. Um, that's the first person that came to my mind. Um, Amazing. Well, yes, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm also incredibly fond of her and she's been really supportive and really encouraging of me. And she's great. The, the, the whole setup, the sort of, you know the team she's assembled around her there's everybody is like a, like everybody's a good egg everybody's like ridiculously talented mm -hmm. and she's really mm -hmm. shown how you can be an artist in today's environment she took some very bold decisions very early on in her career and mm -hmm. when you think of the lineage of british music divas she there's nobody like her and there's nobody with her story um and there's no one who's quite spanned the heights of pop and been worked with people who are that mainstream and people who are just a bunch of fucking nerds and weirdos and and i love her for that you know you know like there's nobody in 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 like you know i i i love looking at the narrative of things and and when you look at, and so yeah when you look at the narrative of british female musicians she's taken it to this other level and yeah. amen Amen has has made it a much better place for all of us weirdos. So there we go. Yeah, exactly. And Neil Sebastian, thank you so much, darling. Thank you, my love. Um, yeah, thank you. This has been lovely. Thank you so much, Emil, for that incredible conversation. And thank you.
thank you all for tuning in and subscribing. Thanks to The Rattle for all of their technical support on this podcast. You can find out more about Witch at Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.com forward slash Witch. You can go to Witch.com to find out news and updates and to sign up to our monthly newsletter. Until next time, thanks and goodbye.